Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science here on 3RRR. We have a huge show ahead for you in the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning, madam. How are you? Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm well. How are you? Sound a bit croaky. Husky. Husky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Been working on it. More depth. And Dr. Scarlett, good morning. Good morning. Nice to see you again. Good to see you too. And Dr. Ray. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Yeah, it's good to see you. We've got Liv doing our Twitter feed. We've got guests coming out of our eyeballs today. <laughs> They're everywhere. Um, we've got them online. We've got them in the green room. It's going to be a huge show. Uh, Gracie is on the line all the way from Texas as well. Good morning, Gracie. How are you? Yes, hello. Good. How are y'all? Good, good. <laughs> good to talk to you. Love the yours. Um, everything okay over there? You're not too hot. Here, there's a heat wave. Yes, no, it was actually, this was the first uh, coolest day in about the last month that we've had. Wow. So hmm. it's pretty good. Yeah, we'll chat about that later. On the line, though, first up is our first guest from the Western Sydney University up in New South Wales, Associate Professor Mike Armour, who is a higher degree research director and part of the NICM Health Research Institute at Western Sydney Uni. Good morning, Mike. How are you going? Morning, Shane. I'm good, thanks. It is great to connect up with you. We have to talk about your work because I think this is something that follows on very, very cleanly from the live audience show that we did just um, a couple of months ago on endometriosis. You have been looking at the some of the interactions between the use of medicinal cannabis and people who are suffering from endo. Do tell, what, what are you investigating there with regards to this particular type of treatment? Yeah, so we've, uh, so I have to give a, firstly a shout out to my amazing PhD candidate, Justin Sinclair, who um, is uh, heavily involved in this area with me and much, much smarter than I am about this. Um, so I'm stealing his glory by being here and talking about it. But we've been working on, um, we, we started a few years ago looking at what people with endometriosis were using to try and manage their pain because I'm sure anyone who's has endometriosis or knows someone who has it or watched has you know listened to your show um, understands how incredibly difficult it is to manage pain for most people with endo. Um, surgery works for many, which is fantastic, but unfortunately not for everybody. And um, you know, the, a lot of the drugs which are currently used, while they look quite promising in clinical trials, I think what we hear is, you know, many people struggle with the very severe side effects that can happen with mm. those. Um, so we were really interested to see, well, you know, when you've got, you know, a pain condition like that with sub, you know, optimal treatment for many, often people will turn to other forms of treatment. Um, and so we surveyed people way back in, I think, 2018, asked them about what they were using. And we found, to our surprise, that quite a few people were using medicinal cannabis, or at that time, just cannabis, because most of it was illicitly yep. obtained. But what was interesting was, you know, people said they rated it much more effective than than other things that they were trying. Um, and so that kind of started us down this track to start to see, you know, what were people using and would this potentially be a therapeutic target um, for endometriosis? So since then, we've done several um, surveys. We've also done um, a retrospective review on a large data set from Canada, um, looking at how um, people with endometriosis manage their symptoms. And we found really promising evidence um, that, you know, people are self-reporting large reductions, um, what we call the substitution effect, in a number of medications, including opioids and benzodiazepines and other things which are potentially maybe not the best thing to be on for long periods of time, you know, if you can help it. Um, not saying that they don't help many people, but, you know, there is obviously concerns about addiction and dependence. So anyway, we've been very, very fortunate to, um, we've been building this kind of, um, I guess, evidence base that it seems like a potentially useful intervention. And we've been very fortunate this year to have two successful funding um, 
grants, I guess. And so the first one is um, I'm very pleased that we are partnering with Deakin University um, and we have some funding from the Victorian government um, to look at how medicinal cannabis might reduce emergency department presentations. And I think... Um, you know, again, if anyone knows someone with endo, you probably find that at least some stage they've ended up in ED, mm. often several times. And what we heard from emergency doctors is they feel quite powerless in a sense, you know, because they can give strong medication and ketamine and things like that. But really, it's obviously addressing the issue as it happens, but then they're likely to be back. So to give a very quick summary, small clinical trial, it's a pilot study looking at three different um We've got three arms. Our first one is a CBD isolate. Um, the second one is a CBD isolate where they're also able to access vaporized cannabis flower, which contains THC. And then the final one is a placebo oil. Um, and what we're looking at there is obviously it's mostly a feasibility study to see if this is, um, you know, an acceptable treatment that could go to a fully powered trial because we do have a limited budget. Um, and we're really interested to see, can this reduce the, the need for presentation? Um, and especially in the group that has access to the vaporized cannabis, because that can be used, you know, as a breakthrough pain treatment, mm -hmm. because that tends to kick in very quickly within yeah. usually five minutes. Um, so that's our, that's our first trial. So I will take a breath in case yeah, anyone yeah. has. Well, like, I think um, it's interesting. We've only got a few minutes left, but it's it is it's interesting because so many people are already utilizing medicinal cannabis um, through through the the health system now. Of course, you, know, you can get um, you know you don't have to go down and buy it down some you know university Dodgy college alleyway. Uh, well, you know, just at university <laughs> colleges. I think that's where you go. Uh, but you know, it is of course when you buy it as a medicinal product through the health system, it is far more refined, and you know exactly what you're getting every single time. Which I think is a yeah. really big part of making sure that if we're going to determine whether or not this is an effective treatment, we have to make sure that we know what everyone's getting, um, and that presumably is something that you have to keep an eye on in this trial. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and that's and you bring up an excellent point. Is we we know from our latest data, still surprising number of people who are accessing it illicitly, and this can be cost and other barriers. But as you say, when you're using it in the trial, we have to know what what's being used. You know, we know exactly how much THC is in um, the the product, how much CBD, how much people are taking, um, and also for I guess other health reasons as well you know, that there's no contaminants, heavy metals, pesticides, they're all yeah. regulated. Um, and so, you know, that's the thing is we know from self-report, great. But obviously, you know, we really need to test this prospectively because medicinal cannabis as well is likely to have a strong what we call expectation effect, you know. So mm. we need um, placebo-controlled trials um, to really understand how much of this is based on the particular components, you know, like THC, CBD, CBN and others and how much is, is, you know, a very strong placebo or non-specific effect? Yeah, yeah. And look, even just uh, I think sometimes it helps people be a little less pissed off that the health system is failing them when they have endo. That's, <laughs> that effect should be measured as well because um, I suspect that's a pretty big part of it. Now, before we, we let you go, Mike, um, you're also doing a research priorities paper at the moment with regards to what patients and, and their loved ones actually want in this space, which I think is a much broader issue. What sort of things are you seeing there or what sort of things are you going after? So that's a great question. We've got the survey out. We've actually got some focus group data coming out as well. And unsurprisingly, obviously, you know, what people are wanting is reduced diagnostic time. Um, mm. You know, there's really a, a strong focus on, you know, if we can find blood markers, saliva markers, you know, even obviously the specialist ultrasound scans, anything to bring that diagnostic time down so that people can then start to get their treatment options evaluated. Yeah. But also... To, to feel validated as well, understandably, because there's so, you know, people go for years to doctors and are told there's nothing wrong, it's all in your head, it's just part of being a woman, um, you know, and so bringing that diagnostic time down. But also, again, another priority, and one of the reasons why we're focusing on medicinal cannabis is non-hormonal treatments yeah. for pain, other symptoms. So we're trying to follow, you know, what people are wanting, um, you know, and trying to design our research around as much as we can addressing those priority questions from 
from people who have endo and their families and um, and loved ones. Yeah, I think one of the things you're seeing there too is that this is a you know we're using one word endometriosis, but it has so many different flavors and types and, and colors, and depending on you know what you you as an individual have, you may need an array of interventions, or you may need one excision surgery and you're done, and everything exactly. in between. And so the idea that we can look at this in a very simplistic way is actually quite ignorant in a healthcare sense. We need to take a far more sophisticated approach, it seems. A hundred percent. And that's the thing is people with endometriosis end up having to be their own disease managers, you know, because mm. most of the time you do need a multidisciplinary treatment as much as it would be amazing you know to have one treatment as you say that that suits everybody for most people they do need this complex management because it's a very complex disease and i think the last thing i want to say because i realize we're out of time is you know endometriosis is not a menstrual disease i think we need to stop thinking of it as uh you know a menstrual condition it affects the whole body and it affects people across the menstrual cycle and with no menstrual cycle you know you can have hysterectomy no periods, still endometriosis. Mm, yeah, it goes on and on. Mike, it's great to hear that you're doing good work up there. I think I'm going to bump into you at some stage in August because I'll, yes. I'll be up there teaching a grant writing workshop at Western Sydney University and um, we'll at the very least try and have a coffee and, and chat more about this topic because it's uh, one that I have great interest in. Thanks so much for being our guest today and good luck with the ongoing work. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Folks, that was Associate Professor Mike Armour from Western Sydney University talking about some of the great work there being done around Australia, also with Deakin University, on endometriosis. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements. And when we come back, uh, Gracie from Texas is going to be telling us all about sharks, I believe. If that, that assumes that my memory from what she mentioned to me on Tuesday is serving me well. So 10% chance, do you think? Lyndon's looking at me funny. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, hopeful. that we're going to hear yeah, about sharks. I think we're going to hear about sharks. Triple R. Welcome back, people. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shame. We've got Gracie on the line from Texas. She's going to tell us all about sharks, I believe. Gracie, have I remembered that correctly? Yes, you did. We are going to chat about sharks today. So, sharks have actually been around for a really long time. Uh, estimated 455 million years, mm. so even before a lot of dinosaurs as well. Yep. Yeah, I so you were say, shark... even before Shane started this show. What was that? I thought yeah. she was going to say <laughs> even before you started this show. Before I started mm. doing Einstein and Gogo. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't hit by an asteroid though. <laughs> Sorry, Gracie. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Yeah. Geez, that's optimistic so, for a Sunday morning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. So uh, also most sharks live to be about 20 to 30 years. Um, but actually a shark called the spiny dogfish has one of the longest lifespans. They can actually live over 100 years, which is really impressive. Uh, also whale sharks fit mm. this category too. Um, and uh, whale sharks are actually the biggest sharks. Um, so they can actually grow to be 12.2 meters long, estimated, and weigh about 40 tons. Um, and then we also have everything all the way down to the dwarf lantern shark is the smallest shark. And that could fit in most people's hand. Yeah. Um, cute. And yes. Yeah. They're super cute. I was looking at pictures of them before this and I was like, Oh, I kind of want one as like a pet, but of course that would never <laughs> happen, but they're super cute. And sharks actually don't have bones. Um, so a lot of people have the misconception that they do have bones typically because, you know, we see sharks uh, maybe in like museums, kind of like replicas of like their skeletons or things like that. Um, their skeletons do fossilize uh, because they're made of cartilage, actually, cartilage and connective tissue. So they're actually not made of uh, bones. Hmm. And cartilage is actually a lot more flexible and durable than bone. So it's about half the normal density. A bone, so this actually uh, reduces their their weight, and it saves them a lot of energy whenever they're swimming too. Yeah, um, they do have teeth, though, so their teeth are a lot like ours, obviously, uh, and uh, they're harder and denser. Uh, and uh, the shark teeth are actually constantly replaced throughout their life, um, so multiple rows of teeth kind of grow in a groove on the inside of their jaw and they kind of move forward like a conveyor belt if you can picture that so some sharks actually lose 30,000 or more teeth in their lifetime 
Uh, and I actually was reading something. I didn't fact check this, um, so I'm not sure if it's true or not. But I was reading something that said it's actually the most common fossilized item on the Earth. Wow. Shark teeth. Wow. Yeah, that's that's so, surprising. I mean, yeah. I would believe that. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, Thirty thousand or more 30, from each shark from one shock. That's a lot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that is a lot. Um, and the rate of their tooth replacement actually varies uh, once every eight to 10 days, uh, or it could be all the way to several months between teeth replacements. Um, and in most species, the teeth are replaced uh, like one at a time, as opposed to kind of like an entire row in con- uh, at one time, uh, except for the cookie cutter shark, which actually loses an entire row of teeth at one time, which is pretty cool. Um, and cookie cutter sharks could actually have their own episode. <laughs> they're so cool yeah. in so many ways. Um, do you know why they're called cookie cutter sharks? Well, I, my understanding is they leave they leave sort of shape bites in in other animals that are always exactly the same, like a cookie cutter. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They're the way that their jaws are formed. They're actually almost perfectly round, so they mm. have that exact kind of cookie cutter shape after they leave a wound. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how they identify that. Yeah, that's why. And for stuff. most sharks, their jaws. Yes. Yeah, it is. Uh, and for most sharks, their jaws are actually not attached to their skull, so they can move them independently. Um, and oftentimes, their jaws actually need a lot of extra support uh, because, as we talked about earlier, um, their bones are actually not bones. In fact, they're made out of cartilage. Um, and so, as you can imagine, getting that bite force would be pretty difficult. So they actually have this layer of little hexagonal plates um, in, within their cartilage that are called tesserae. Um, and they're basically like uh, calcium salts that are kind of arranged in this pattern to help strengthen uh, the cartilage hmm. in their jaws hmm. to help with their bite force. Yeah. Um, and most incredible... sharks have only... Sorry, Gracie, they've got incredible bite forces, oh, most okay. sharks. Yeah, like they can bite through seals and really like tough animals. Yeah. Well... Yes, definitely. Yeah. And most sharks actually only have one layer of the tesserae, but... Um, Sharks that you think of that maybe have higher bite force, for instance, maybe like a great white shark, can have up to five layers. Mm. Uh, so they can increase their bite force basically that way by having more of these tesserae layers. Uh, and so how do sharks actually float? So fish can have uh, swim bladders to help with this, uh, to kind of help with their buoyancy. But sharks actually typically don't have these. So sharks instead have a really large liver that's filled with oil that contains squalene. Uh, and as we discussed earlier, their cartilage skeletons about half the normal density of bone, so that helps with that as well uh, with the buoyancy. Um, and their liver actually makes up up to thirty percent of their total body mass, so their livers Whoa. are huge. Wait, yeah. wait, wait, wait! That makes way more sense now because whenever you hear you hear those studies about when killer whales kill sharks, they eat the liver. Right. And I thought, why the liver? Why wouldn't they eat more of the shark? It's most but of it. It's most of it. <laughs> it's the best part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like almost a whole third of the shark is the liver. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, you have the fin, I'll have the liver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah, and some other sharks, though, like sand tiger sharks, actually do store air in their stomachs, and so they kind of use it as a form of a swim bladder. So, of course, sharks are really diverse. Um, and most of them get their oxygen, well, actually all of them, all sharks get their oxygen from the water. Uh, and you've probably heard kind of this this uh, this fact that some sharks have to keep swimming like continuously all the time um, because they have to continuously be pumping water over their gills in order to get that oxygen. So these would be sharks like hammerheads or great whites. But actually some species of sharks have this modified gill slit. It's called a spiracle, which is really fun to say. Um, I'm actually not even sure if I'm pronouncing that right. It could be spiracle, but I really like spiracle. So I'm going to go with that pronunciation for this. Um, and so these little spiracles are like little gill slits right behind their eyes. So if you look at pictures of sharks, uh, unless it's a hammerhead or a great white, you could you could see these on the animal. Um, but it actually lets them pull water directly into their respiratory system while they're resting. Wow. So uh, basically it gives their eyes and their brain a direct supply of oxygen. It's wild stuff. Wild stuff. Um, Gracie, in your deep dive and deep swim with all these sharks, they've been around for so many millions of years. I'm going to ask a climate change question. Do you know whether there are some species that are really thriving and adaptive well, adapting well to a warmer, more acidic ocean or some species that aren't? 
Yeah, um, I actually didn't look into uh, specific species in adapting or adapting uh, to different water types, but there are some uh, that can regulate uh, kind of like they have these uh, osmo regulation techniques. Um, so a lot of sharks don't do very well in freshwater environments for that reason, because they actually have a really difficult time. Their kidneys have a hard time processing um, certain minerals, um, which makes it really difficult for them to adapt to freshwater environments. So anything that kind of takes them um, closer to a freshwater environment can be detrimental to most sharks. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and also most sharks are cold-blooded, which basically uh, we can think of that as their internal body temperature matches the temperature on the outside, so the water temperature. Um, but some sharks, like the great white, are warm-blooded, so they have a higher body temperature than the surrounding water, essentially. Um, and there was actually a Nature paper that was published earlier this year that was one of the first papers that found that uh, there's actually a hammerhead shark that closes its mouth and its gills whenever it dives, and that's how it maintains its its temperature as it's diving down into deeper waters as it gets colder. I got to say the hammerhead shark to me is one of the wildest creatures on the planet. I mean, I I think I I saw a piece of research maybe 10, 15 years ago now about the, the way it evolved the hammerhead shape on the head meant that um, because it was essentially uh, testing the water between two nostrils that were a certain distance apart, those nostrils being further apart meant that it could triangulate the location of its prey faster and hence get to its prey quicker. And that was the adaptation. Now, I'm sure there's some marine biologists out there who may correct that or not, but um, that was that was what I remember reading. I thought, if that's the case, that is just wild evolutionary biology going, I'm going to work out how to kill my prey quicker, yeah. um, which is you know what it's all about, right? So, yeah. Sorry, Gracie, go ahead. Yeah, and then, yeah, no, that's great. That was actually one of the points that I was going to make next, so that's a great transition. Um, And then also this hammerhead that we just talked about that essentially holds its breath whenever it dives, uh, you know, to to kind of maintain Mm. its body temperature, which, of course, uh, I assume would help it find prey as well with those dives. Um, So that's pretty interesting, yeah. Um, And bow sharks can actually detect as little as one part per million of blood in seawater. So one part per million. Yeah, that's a bit scary. Mm. Yeah. Like, you know, I I just I I make sure I'm not bleeding when I go into the water. Yeah. yeah, and and of course because of my upbringing, you know, I saw Jaws when I was a very young child, and that kind of biased my my fear of the ocean, <laughs> and and also made me love sharks. I think they're one of the most amazing creatures. Like they're they're so resilient. I was very proud of my son when he was about five. I took him on the Steve Irwin that was docked in Williamstown. And they show the video of whales and how they were trying to protect whales. And he just piped up and said, are you protecting sharks too? And the poor person presenting, uh, well, you know, it's a big ocean. We're doing the best we can. <laughs> but sharks, yeah. Top of the food chain. Sorry, Gracie. Yeah, no, you're great. Um, and then there have also been uh, environmental adaptations. So uh, sharks that uh, are in, in environments with lower visibility, um, so maybe have like uh, deeper depths of waters that they inhabit. Um, they typically have larger olfactory bulbs to help them smell um, in the water. Uh, whereas in reef environments where the visibility is higher, you know, the water's shallower, uh, they've actually found that those sharks tend to have smaller olfactory bulbs. Um, so that's, yeah, a pretty interesting adaptation as well. Cool. And then we can also talk about sight. So I know uh, sharks' eyes are actually pretty similar to ours in the sense that they have, you know, the same typical parts. So like a cornea, retina, lenses, but they also have this extra tissue called a tapetum lucidum. Um, And it's basically like a thin tissue. It sits kind of behind the retina and it reflects light back to it. Um, And so it basically helps it see um, in dark waters. Hmm. Interesting. Yep. And sharks uh, also have eyelids. Uh, but they actually don't blink because the water cleans their eyes as they're going through. So to protect their eyes, some species have uh, what's called nictate. See if I could say this right: nictitating, <laughs> nictitating membranes. Um, and so it basically covers the eyes of the shark while it's being attacked. But there are some species of shark that don't have this membrane. So like the great white shark. Um, so they actually they'll roll their eyes backwards to protect their eyes whenever they're striking prey. Mm. Wow, that is a scary that prospect. Is such a scary yeah, I remember that line from from Jaws. 
I think it was uh, you know Captain Shaw said that you know they roll their eyes when they they're attacking you. Sharks have dead eyes. Yeah, is what he said. yeah. Well, Gracie, uh, thank you so much. Uh, anything final before we go? Yeah, there was a study that was done. Uh, actually, it was about a decade ago. Um, but they were interested, you know, do sharks see in color and do they see in color like we do? Mm. Um, and they basically looked at 17 species of sharks and they found that most of them uh, pretty much only have rods, um, which basically means that they could see in black and white really well. They didn't have very many cone cells, which would be like color cells. Mm. Um, so they basically see in like green, shades of green and then black and white mm. for depth. Yeah. Um, so if you picture kind of like, you know, whenever you're watching some sort of like uh, movie that has kind of like a green night vision goggles, that's kind of <laughs> what I think of. Maybe it's yeah. sort of kind of what they see like. But Yeah. Well, I yeah, guess if you're you know, in the deep dark ocean, that's probably more than you need. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. Thank you so much, Gracie. It's great learning more about sharks. They're, they're amazing creatures and uh, we very much appreciate it. So thanks so much. Yes, thanks. Yeah, next time we'll do maybe a part two for their electromagnetic receptors, which are also really cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. And we can talk about ghost knife fish and all sorts of things. D- Dr. Ray knows what I'm talking yeah. about. They, you don't don't put the fish tank with those in it next to your computer monitor or you'll kill them. Yeah, <laughs> or a small cool. fish that you like in the same tank. Yeah, yeah that too. Thanks, Gracie. <laughs> Folks, uh, we're going to take a break now for some important uh, musical uh, breather. I don't know. We're taking a break for some music. We'll be back with our uh, third guest in just a few minutes. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. In the studio with us now is Dr. Susie Shilliam, who is a research scientist in vascular biophysics from CSL. Hello. Good to have you in the studio. Good to be here. And you're going to help us out with our podcasting too, which is even more important (laughs) than the interview, I have to say. For you it is. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So people, I'm not sure if people are aware of it there in the, the, you know, outside the studio land, but uh, we have a group of volunteers that does the podcasting for us every week. So they convert the stuff that comes out of me somehow into a really good podcast that people can download later. So it's going to be a lot of work. Yeah, I'm prepared for that. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, very good. Now, let's talk about your stuff because it's um, – you. I mean, you've, you've been in Australia for a while in a variety of different um, research roles. So, so just bring us up to speed as to where you've been so far. Yeah, it's been a wild ride actually. So I started my trip in Australia as a joint PhD. So I mm-hmm. did a double degree um, between my German university, started in Bayreuth and the Uni Melbourne here in Australia. And uh, – I just found it really nice to be here, to be honest, and um, escape the Germanisms. That <laughs> is that just the cold, or is it? The uh, you know, it has its it has its advantages if you have summer all year round because you can fly back and forth and avoid right. winter for a few years. So that's yeah. that's kind of nice. But um, now it was uh, Germany can be. I don't want to bitch too much about it, but it can be very stuck in some ways, and particularly when you're a female in science, it sometimes has its disadvantages. So right. um, it was really nice to come here and um, kind of have a blank slate and, you know, start anew. Yeah. And um, generally the culture and obviously the weather here is just amazing. So it was always a dream of mine to come here, ever since my mum had a pen friend in Australia. And right. so I made that reality, and then I just liked it, fell in love, stayed here. Yeah. yeah. And, and you've been working in a variety of areas, but one of them is yeah. nanofluidics. Which exactly, is, yes. Um, I mean, just give people a bit of an understanding of what we mean totally. by that. Yes, I worked, in, I worked with micro and nanofluidics for quite a long time. I started in my PhD, actually in my master's. Um, and then I moved on to different roles from a postdoc at RMIT where we used hydrogen storage to ANSTO where I looked at it with several scattering techniques and things in combination. And now at CSL where I do more of the biotech side. But the, the really interesting part about it is it's, um, it's basically giving us a magnifying glass into things that that appear on a nanoscale. Um, and the nicest bit about it is that it's basically battling stereotypes as much as it does research. Because when you think about chemists, you always have this image of, you know, if you Google it, the stereotypes are this man with the wild hair, you know, pull two things in a beaker and then some explosion happened and then something comes out of it. But if you, if you look in detail into it, this explosion happens on a really, really fast time scale. It can be milliseconds, nanoseconds. Yep. And the way that, you know, chemists look into this is often taking aliquots and and then so little pieces of the reaction, um, little, I don't know, milliliters or whatever, um, and then looking at it in a static way. But if your reaction is really fast, you can't really do that because mm. we only have two hands and 
there's yeah. only so much you can do with a pipette. Um, and microfluidics kind of gives us the ability to spread this time axis that you have in a beaker onto a distance axis along a channel in the micron or nano size scale. And it basically gives you a static reaction at every single point along those channels. So if you measure it with, you know, the real power comes in in the techniques you use, but if you measure it with lasers or x-rays, you can actually freeze your reaction on that channel in time and look at the same point in time over, you know, however long you need the measurement to be. And yeah. it's really interesting because if you have, you know, fast chemical reactions or fundamental science that can be very important to later on applications, nowadays we do this to mimic things like your blood vessels and, you know, look at right. what happens right. in the human body, for example. And it's, it's just a really powerful tool. Yeah. So I remember years ago when I was working in the School of Chemistry, which as a physics person was a little bit... Yeah, <laughs> Out there. It was, it was a bit tough. <laughs> as um, someone in the School of Chemistry at that time, he was a bit tough to take. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and I remember once uh, we were working with the – I did a lot of work with optical fibers, and there were certain mm -hmm. types of fibers that were hollow in the center for specific reasons. And someone said to me, you know, they were working on microfluidics. And, and I said, well, you know, we work with these things. They're about – you know, some of these holes in the middle are about five microns wide. So human hair is about 50, 50 microns, so, you know, pretty small. It is. And they said, oh, have you got other sizes? And I said, yeah, we've got heaps of different sizes. We can make them any size you want. And then they said, could you connect a 5 to a 10? Yeah. And I said, yeah, no problem. Easy, right? Did it. And they were like, wow, because we can measure all these different things on that scale that we can't measure on a large scale exactly. with regards to fluid dynamics. Yeah, totally. And I, I wasn't aware that this was such a, a big problem. But when you talk about things like our arteries and various – and, you know, parts of the brain where – you know, in the eye yeah. where these things are really small – the so the mechanics we work on on a large scale don't really work the same exactly way, right? and it's the whole fluid dynamics is a whole different topic right because if you think about how you mix things in real life you just pull them together and mm. you know the kind of turbulences that form the little wiggles in your glass just do the mixing for you but if you go on to that really tiny scale of microns or nanometers um, turbulences don't appear anymore so it's all laminar it's streamlined and so mixing only occurs by diffusion which is a really interesting topic in itself yeah. and like physicists go on about this forever for sure but <laughs> <laughs> but for chemists like me, um, this is really interesting because it kind of is a way to slow down your reaction as well, right? If you if you think about a chemist again, you know, pouring things in a beaker, it's really fast. If you have it diffusion controlled, it comes to how big is your molecule you're reacting and how fast can it reach the other stream of your other reactant molecule. Yeah. So it's it's really it's some really nice tricks to to get where you want to be. And yeah. then again, as I said, it's a you know it's a looking glass into a world that we can't usually see. So there's a whole world opening. So, so what are there any sort of big things that have come out of that so far in terms of the world of sort of micro microfluidics oh. and, and things that have sort of we, we couldn't otherwise have examined? Yes, there's a lot of things, and unfortunately, I have to say that uh, microfluidics, although not many people know about it, some the ones that do know outside the you know science world, yeah. actually it has a really bad reputation, which is thanks to Elizabeth Holmes in, in America, who does the whole Theranos debacle oh, because yeah, she yes. wanted to use yes. it, you know, with the yeah, the, with the whole nano drop whatever yeah. on the testing of a and it's really sad because the idea in itself is really valuable and it's you know mm. it's it's very very interesting and very much out there and you know in a few years from now this might actually be happening just at the time she was promising things that yeah. weren't weren't right yet but it's it, it is like that so it you know microfluidics is a tool that is works best in combination with other techniques um one of the main things in australia for example australian company called minifab um does it to test dry eye disease so they're having this oh, yeah. little device you know when you have dry eye disease you don't um, produce enough of tear liquid um but to really actively and efficiently um test it and then also, I guess, give you medication for it and see where you're at. You have to test your tear liquid for markers. Yep. And so to, to harvest as much and make the most out of as much or as little as you get, they made this little device with a microfluidic device on it, so microfluidic tunnels, um, which can harvest like tiniest amounts of tear liquid and then analyze it on this little chip and give you a complete readout what you need for your disease, which is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, that's so, wild. Exactly. And it's, it's a mixture of capillary force because you don't need pumps always, you know, if your channels are small enough, but also just the combination of a smart channel design, a smart device design with ever so small optical measurements like you know absorption yep. of fluorescence or then we, I've used it on, a, on an x-ray scattering beam line for x-ray scattering so the, the combination makes the makes a big deal. Yeah, that's wild stuff. I mean, great to hear that coming out of Minifab too. I remember I was yeah. there on the day when Errol Harvey first started yeah. Minifab many, many years ago. Um, and it's great to see that that startup um, is essentially yeah. still going and, and, and doing great And it's all based science. on microfluidics. So yeah. this is like, 
yeah, yeah incredible that's stuff. My... Now, uh, Susie, before we let you go, uh, you you put you're putting together or you're you already have together a um, podcast that you or a, a video podcast actually that you are using to teach people about science yeah I do. tell us about that yeah i have a whole youtube channel it's called shelium which is you know battling stereotypes yet again females in science it's like helium but with an s because i'm female yeah. pronouns and things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly you can yeah. play it the it way you want it yeah. to you know yeah. it all works out so nicely as if i planned it that way um <laughs> so yeah <laughs> it's on youtube you can find it um i make science content for everyone they're kids friendly videos often i blurb out my swears because sometimes you know i have cameos of angry scientists coming which is very important we have feelings too um but <laughs> no it's it's really great it's um i started it, it was actually a coincidence um i started it because i was in a one of these eco shops and we were trying to prepare for a through hike through wilson's prom again mm-hmm. australian nature and uh, i wanted to save weight so i wanted to buy toothpaste tablets because you know i didn't want to have the squeezy toothpaste thing that you have to then carry around mm-hmm. when it's right. empty and it is impossible to find toothpaste tablets without with fluoride so all the ones in the eco shops that you can find are without fluoride and i hate that topic because every time you ask for it you get the whole unload of rant on you why you shouldn't contain fluoride and the evils and as a scientist this is a trigger point for me so you know instead of rambling again for another 20 minutes to this whatever person in the shop um i just made a video about it and that's how it all started and then from there on i had a lot of friends who like oh oh did you hear, what, what is the deal with BPA? And I'm like, oh, it's a good topic. So, I, you know, and yeah. then what's the deal with artificial sweetness? So, yeah, there are videos about questions that you might have always asked yourself or never thought about it. But at least, you know, if you learn something, then it is that science is really cool and it's not as difficult as people make it sound sometimes. Yeah, no, that sounds good. So people just have to Google shelium as opposed to helium. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is either fun. I, I should say, actually, um, Lyndon, you and Scarlett probably saw this maybe as well, um, but there's been a bit of a controversy uh, from a German Nobel laureate oh, yes. over the oh. last few days. I um, see that. Uh, because uh, essentially they they weren't getting enough airtime uh, and, and as, as a man they felt uh, discriminated against. Mm, yeah, the poor men. Yeah. That gets so discriminated. Yeah. I mean, I offered hugs, you mm. know, like for it's a, them. It's a good approach. Really nice. Well, I think, you know, if they're feeling bad and they're feeling discriminated against in science, the least we can do is give them a hug. Um, I didn't get any hugs for discrimination, I felt, but yeah, all right. I take it. I, take it. <laughs> <laughs> I think Linda will give you a hug. Well, it was, uh, it was yeah. Hugger Climate Scientist Day recently. Um, <laughs> That's on, was it really? Yeah, yeah, the 12th of June every year, Hugger Climate Scientist Day, started by First Dog on the Moon, right. uh, the cartoonist. But he has backpedaled that recently, and now he says, don't hug. Don't, don't just randomly don't hug just people randomly on the street. Don't just randomly hug people <laughs> yeah. on the street. Not, not the best thing to no, do. Yeah. you've got to ask. In post-COVID times, probably a good advice, to be yeah. honest. Oh, well, I mean, a big shout-out, though, to these Nobels, because, you know, like, the, some of them are great, um, and there was four males on this panel. Yeah, and exactly. If any of those four males need a hug, I'm there for them. Uh, I'm just, just to hug yeah. it out. You know? Ask first. Yeah, I'm just yeah. so sad because I feel like this is the representation that that I get right. I'm from Germany originally, so mm. that's, it was a German chemist. So I feel massively attacked by this <laughs> on an all male panel. You know, also being white of skin color, and it's just it really triggers me because I spend a lot of my time studying in Germany. You know, particularly chemistry mm. and the representations of females and you know non-binary people is is really re- not as good as it should be. Yeah. And if you are there, then often what you see is. Um, that the approaches, and I, I actually had those exact words told to me by a female chemist, um, that they had it so hard, so they don't see the point why they should make it any easier on the people coming after them. So I shouldn't, I should stop complaining and just get my yeah. act together, literally, yeah. and then you know, get where they were by working oh. hard and just you know. Yes, yeah, uh, and that's up, a great yeah, you know that's a, that's a great idea. I mean, we should all yeah. wash out wash our clothes on rocks by the river too. Exactly, I mean, you, know, like you, you, you don't want to move progress. Nah, progress nah, that's is not bad. Good. That's progress is bad. Um, Susie, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Oh, pleasure, uh, absolute pleasure. Good to talk to you. Good luck with the YouTube channel. Um, Thank you. It's always nice to hear that people are communicating science effectively. We're going to take a break for some station announcements, folks, and when we come back, we'll be covering some news. Triple R. Uh, we are Triple R here. It's a science program, folks. If you've just worked that out, that's a concern. But um, hopefully you all know it's a science program. Well, I think you would have, it for it, would have figured it out after the last guest. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Anyway, it's time for some news. Um, I'm just, see, this is what happens. They all look at me randomly. The team look at me. Who's going to go first? Ray, over to you. Wow, that was <laughs> unexpected, actually. Uh, so... Um, I uh, I actually this this really grabbed my eye. It was that how 
um, uh, uh, researchers have found, uh, this came out in Nature this week, uh, how cholesterol can make surfaces non-stick. Now, this does not cholesterol. Mean, cholesterol. This does not mean you should go out and eat more bacon. Mm. Um, when we're Damn talking it. about making surfaces nonstick, what we're really talking about is preventing surfaces from having things like proteins and bacteria stick to them and bioadhesion. Now, this is actually a problem that is has a lot of engineered coatings and has tackled a lot of different ways in our everyday lives now. So if you wear a contact lens, Dr. Shane and I wear glasses. I don't know if... I wear contact lenses. Doctor Scholar. Hey, there we go. There we go. Tell me about it. uh, And so, (laughs) like the coatings on a contact lens are actually engineered polymers. A lot of times, they're polyethylene glycol, or uh, the uh, originally the contact brand Seba had pioneered a lot of anti-fouling coatings to prevent proteins from sticking on them for long wear lenses, and that was actually done with CSIRO in Australia. Mm. Um, And and so that was really about keeping proteins and bacteria from sticking on on your eyes. And and actually. There are not a plethora of engineered coatings that you can use. And so the idea that cholesterol could do this is quite novel and and never been observed before. And what was neat about this was how the scientists figured this out is they were looking at a particular type of bug called a springtail bug, which is a wingless insect I'd never heard of, but I'm sure Dr. Scarlett knows. I just taught about them last semester. Well timed. They're everywhere, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of them. They're, like they're, yeah. they're really prevalent. But because I think for respiration and breathing, their skin has to stay very clean. And so what they noticed was the, the skin of these bugs and there um, has a lot of different hierarchical structures to have air gaps and prevent things from getting wet or, or pre- prevent uh, dirt from sticking to them. But then the researchers went, oh, well, let's look at the chemical makeup. And they went, there's a lot of cholesterol in their skin. And so they systematically using both uh, some fantastic experimental techniques that are actually close to my heart as well as thermodynamic simulations showed that surfaces with these cholesterol coatings actually were repulsive to bacteria and and proteins. But what they also found that was really interesting was the cholesterol had to be able to move freely so it could Mm. rotate around and spin around like a top. They probably wouldn't have said top, but that's close enough. Um, And anyway, so they kind of went – Nobody's seen cholesterol in this role before. And so while they want to study it a little bit more and they might even like to understand a little bit more about the bugs, it really has the potential to define another pathway to consider engineered coatings to make non-fouling systems for bioadhesion. And now they're probably not always thinking about contact lenses, but certainly biological implants and things where cholesterol is actually FDA approved and Mm -hmm. can already go in the body. So that's that's a very interesting approach and and no one's considered this before. So I thought it was a... I think sometimes you've got to back out the – we know that word cholesterol so well yeah. that we assume we know mm-hmm. all we need to know. But, you know, if you think of it just as a bunch of chemicals mm-hmm. and how they play out in the real world, it's complicated. Yeah, and there's a lot of cool stuff there. So Another yes. beautiful example of discoveries being found through nature as well. Yeah. Nature's already doing something pretty rad and then – we come across it yeah. and take it for our own. Yeah. Now, let's work out which of you two has the more croaky voice. Dr. Scarlett, All do you right. want to go next? Yeah, let's get through this with the croaky voice. <laughs> and I'm actually talking about acoustics, so maybe Perfect. that fits well. Um, so a study just came out in the last week on what's called motherese, or a better term for it is infant-directed speech or child-directed um, speech in mm. humans. So you know that high-pitched voice we put on? When we're talking to babies or little yeah, kids, I do and, it with my cats. Yeah, also, yeah. also that if you're <laughs> if you have your pets, which that's that's yeah. more me. Um, and they had a look at whether dolphins were doing it because their whistling oh. patterns actually match speech patterns really well. And they want to know: Are any other animals doing this weird thing we do with children? That actually, what we know with children is it supports attention, bonding, and helps their language acquisition. So they had a look at these bottlenose dolphins in Florida over 34 years. So it was a massive study, part of a huge study that's been going for 50 years. Um, And they put on these hydrophones on females and then recorded what sounds they were making in the presence of their calves, so dependent calves, and when they were with other dolphins or by themselves. And um, basically what they found is that these mother dolphins were doing a very similar thing to humans and they had a higher pitch frequency when they were around their calves compared to when they weren't and actually have some audio to play, hoping this goes smoothly. Um, So this is a mother dolphin without a calf. How well did you hear that? Yeah, yeah, that was good. And here's a mother dolphin with her calf. Oh, much higher pitch at the end, wasn't it? Yeah. So basically what they're saying is that dolphins... Do baby talk as well, just like us. That's wild. 
<laughs> very cute study. Um, and it's actually, it was this tiny study a part of, like that they were just doing on the side as a part of this 50-year research project. And it turned out it was published in PNAS, which is a very good journal. So they, they did a pretty good job finding this out just uh, as a little side project. Yeah. Does the study suggest other mammals might do a similar thing? That is a great question. So they haven't found any other species that are doing it exactly the same way, but there are... Um, what are they, male zebra finches, squirrel monkeys and rhesus macaques that alter their communication mm. with um, juveniles present. Uh, the closest one might be female greater sacked winged bats that, that might do something most similar but not in the way that humans and dolphins so, are doing it. But well, I think it sets a good basis to start yeah. going and looking who else is doing it. So toothed whales have been shown that they actually have vocal registers. And the only other two species that have that are people and like ravens, and and so I just wonder if like there's a lot of similarity. There's a, vocal registers are a pretty unique thing to have, and then to hear how dolphins work on that since they're toothed whales, I wonder if there's any connection there. It's cool stuff. Yeah, it's that's cool good stuff. species wild. to look at next. I think I'm still using the high voice with my cats, <laughs> and I'm not ashamed of it. It's helping the bonding hey, and you know, and their language me. acquisition. So. Yeah, they love me probably because I feed them, but you know they do. <laughs> <laughs> if you really believe your cats uh, love you, they don't just decide what to do with you if you ever die and, you know, what to do with your body. Well, it's part just... of the interaction is that I'm well-trained by the cats, so All I'm right. trained to believe that they love me. And that's why I feed them and take care of them. See, Clever. Humans are stupid. <laughs> uh, right before I hand over to you, Lyndon, we have to mention the gravitational wave detection experiment uh, results that came out this week. Amazing stuff. So um, everyone remembers back in uh, 2015, 2015, 2016, I'm losing my track, uh, when we first detected gravitational waves um, from merging black holes or merging very large stars. Uh, we're a big part of that here in Australia. But this week, the announcement came out from a very different type of experiment, which wasn't done using experimental apparatus on Earth as much as it was using a range of pulsars out in space. So these give us little pulses of, of you know, um, radiation, essentially light, uh, that we pick up. And if you monitor them... Every now and then, you would think if there was a gravitational wave that went between you and that pulsar, that regular beating from the pulsar, that that pulse, uh, would change slightly. And this large group of people from all over the world have been looking at these, a group of these pulsars, many tens of them, and have found exactly this. And what it tells us is that there's not just these individual big events that we we have detected but there might be a background of waves so you know like rough turbulence in the pond as it were that could be caused maybe by the original big bang explosion maybe by many many gravitational um convergences that happened long long ago but there is this background of very very subtle waves that they have now managed to demonstrate uh now there's still some data you know, um, to happen. At the moment, the physicists have nailed it down to there's a one chance in a thousand that this is just a fluke in the data. Now, physicists like it to be one in a million, mm-hmm. so that'll take a couple more years to get there, but for most of us humans, one in a thousand. Nine hundred times over the thousand, this data is correct, so I'm like, yeah, I'm good to go on that. I think we'll confirm it. But it means a whole new area of astronomy, looking at the universe and 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 seeing parts of it from its gravitational history which is just extraordinary so it's a great time to be an astronomer we'll talk more about it down the track or get some guests on about this because i think it's something we want to explore in detail but um pulsars and given that we on two occasions interviewed jocelyn bell who discovered the pulsar on this show Mm. there's such a great connection there which is cool anyway linda your news Oh, well... Yeah, follow that. Yeah, Yeah. I know. Just discovered (laughs) how the universe works differently. Okay, well, the story that I came across this week, I'm ashamed to say I kind of made me feel good about myself. I felt bad about feeling good about myself, but it did make me feel good about myself. Um, This is a working paper, so it hasn't been peer-reviewed. This was published by the National Bureau of Economic Research, some economists in the US. And these guys were looking at Nobel Prize winners, uh, probably not the grumpy German one that we were talking about before, <laughs> yeah. but studying the productivity of Nobel Prize winners before and after they win their Nobel Prize. So they looked at about 60 years of Nobel Prize winners. It was about 140 in medicine and physiology, and they compared these people. I was going to say guys, but I'm pretty sure there's some women in there as well. 
who uh, had won Nobel Prizes for Medicine and Physiology and compared them to themselves before and after winning the prize and also to winners of the Laxa Medal, which is like the American yeah. Nobel. It's yeah. the precursor. It's the precursor, yeah, yeah. yes. Half of the people who win this Laxa Prize and go Nobel. on to win the Nobel. Yeah. And they found that after winning a Nobel Prize, people uh, um, publish less. Yeah. Get uh, cited less, and their ideas are less novel. So they studied novelty of their publications, of their research, by looking at a whole collection of terms and studying when they were first uh, appearing in the literature and when these Nobel Prize winners started doing it. And wow. the, the earlier they did it, then the more kind of novel it was. And I don't know, a part of me was like, oh, okay, cool. So if you're listening out there and you haven't won your Nobel Prize, don't, <laughs> it's okay, because once you do, like it's all, all downhill from there. Well, I think at that point there you can say, you know what, over to you guys. I'm going to take well, some time it. off. I've got the money, mm-hmm. some million bucks. Yeah. Uh, I've got the speaking circuit. That, well, that's what their theory is. I've got other is. things to do. Yeah, that's yeah. the hypothesis that yeah. you've got other things going on once you yeah. win a Nobel Prize. And then the discussion, you know, given mm. the biases that occur in the Nobel mm. Prize, the fact that people are less productive because they're doing other things, what's the cost-benefit analysis there of becoming a scientific superstar, going around and sharing your work with a different audience versus potential lost lab time? So, yeah, um, but a lot of times... By the time they're winners, they're they're not always spring chickens. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah, very uh, true. Yeah. Peter Higgs is an yeah. example. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, one of the other studies they mentioned in this paper was that uh, an economics prize that was awarded to people under the age of forty made them more productive. People who'd won that prize then on, went on to become more productive. Yeah. So possibly more up. emphasis on early mid career prizes would be a good yeah. idea. So anyway, if you if you're not having a great day, don't worry. Yeah. Nobel Prize winners also have their they're downhill. Yeah. Um, not many uh, not many women winning Nobel Prizes, though, sadly. And yes. they don't correct their errors. Hello, Jocelyn Bell. <laughs> we always thought you should have got one. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, the Nobel Committee. Yeah. Bit old-timey. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Got Fair a few issues there. Got a few issues. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, folks, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. Dr. Linden, good to see you. You too. Dr. Scarlett. Thank you. Great to be here. Dr. Ray. Good to see you. Liv's been doing our Twitter feed, folks. Uh, if you want to know any of the links, just get online. You should be able to see them there. I'm Dr. Shane. Uh, we're going to hand over to the team from Eat It in just a moment. Remember, science is everywhere. Thanks to all our guests today. Have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll chat to you again next week. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.